Live from Westview, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome, folks, to episode 120 of Derailed Trains of Thought. Congratulations, Nick. We made it to 120. Wow. That's it's pretty impressive, actually. Every time we hit a new number, I'm like, wow, we actually, we just keep going. Slow and steady. We just keep going, yeah. Slow and steady wins the race, as they say. Yep. But yes, welcome again, folks. This is your premier podcast on storytelling. For the creator and the consumer. My name is Timothy Deal. My name is Nick Hayden. And we've been here for 120 of these things, going on over 10 years of podcasting. It's uh, pretty crazy. Speaking of crazy, Tim, this place has been crazy. Before we started recording, guys, like, it's been black and white. It's been, I don't know. I feel like we've gone through several decades. Like, I have, I've had multiple, usually I don't have multiple costume changes no. before we actually even start the, no. the recording. And some of the people in the town are a little odd. Yeah, yeah. They like kind of stand there. I mean, have we actually been in a black and white world before? I don't know. Like, that was strange. It, it was, was weird. That was super strange. And then, like, we were in the 70s at one time. I had, like, bell-bottom jeans, oh, which yeah. are pretty sweet. My afro was great. Yeah, it really was. And then the 80s, which was fun to relive, and then kind of looks like 90s now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it's pretty At least cool. late 90s, almost like a... It's rad here. It is very rad. But I need uh, my skateboard. Yeah. Know. It's a quaint little town, though, aside from the strangeness. The, yeah, lots of strangeness. Maybe we'll try to get out of here later. Yeah, probably a good idea. I've had this weird tingling in the back of my head. I'm not sure. I'm hoping the podcast is protecting me from. Yeah, I, I felt the same thing. Yeah, some sort of I, weird interference. It's not good. Whatever it is, yeah, probably. I'll not. trust the podcast. Yeah, We've, he's not. It, it has not led us wrong so far. For the most part, aside from the that year or so we spent in now, the realm of derailed thoughts. But yeah, it was fun. It was memorable. Listeners can check out our hundredth episode if they haven't yet. But anyway, that said, we're here to uh, do our regular discussions on the art of storytelling. So let's jump right into that with Story School. For Story School today, we thought we'd tackle the idea of multi-layered stories, stories that you can really go in deep with that have different layers of meaning that you can pull back and analyze and understand like a creepy scientist. I'm not sure why, where this is going. Dissect it like a frog <laughs> lying upon the table. Still croaking. Sometimes we start talking on a podcast and just weird things come out of our mouths. I, I apologize. but uh, Well, because the great thing about stories, and I think more in written word normally, just because that's how I roll, is that words already have multiple meanings. And then as you write a story, yeah, spot ran, Joe went to, up the hill, fell down. But it doesn't take a lot for the reader or the viewer to start Understanding that the story is not just what it's saying, but at the very least has applicability, but more often has actually very deliberate subtext or themes or references. You know, allegories are your super dense layers. Yeah, basically something that's is not just about character, meeting goal, accomplishing tasks, going through character arc. There's usually some other 
ideas that the author, creator, producer, whoever is exploring through the medium of story. Yeah. Often consciously, but sometimes even unconsciously. Uh, Just like, it came out. Like, (laughs) words about dissecting frogs. And we've danced around this before, and a couple of times we've talked about meaning Mm -hmm. um, or stories with a message. Talked about when audiences go too far in analyzing this stuff and and overanalyzation. But anyway, let's get more specific about some of these ways that stories can have layers that the audience can kind of shuffle through. One of the first very basic ones, plot versus theme. We've been dancing around this a little bit. Things happen, but... They happen in the context of, oh, that's good, or that's bad, or, oh, you're talking about that. Yes. <laughs> so one example that, that inspired me to put this on the list uh, was actually the DuckTales reboot, which, especially like by season three, they really cram a lot into every episode. It's kind of crazy sometimes how much they will fit in thing. Something that one of the creators I've seen do on Twitter to kind of tease an uh, upcoming episode, he'll say, last time on DuckTales, and he'll talk about the like deep, like for instance, there's one episode where the family, Scrooge McDuck, the nephews and Donald and others, they encounter mermaid, this mermaid civilization that has basically stagnated because the mermaids actually need to go on land sometimes and maintain their property okay so because otherwise it just kind of falls into the ruins but they've been they've kind of become hippie mermaids and all this stuff so uh so there's there's a lesson there there's a lesson about one of the the kids webby uh her grandmother's tried to kind of hide the follies of human nature from her for a little bit and she kind of has to come to a realization of the truth okay so these are both different lessons that they're learning but at the same time it's a story about mermaids and a hidden treasure and a singing harp and and all this stuff so the what the creator would do would sometimes on twitter he'll be like last time on ducktales a capitalist encounter uh, battles hippie feelings in a philosophical debate on the nature of human nature Next time, Rumble and Ragnarok. <laughs> so, so he'll like describe it in this really super character-meaning way, and then he'll talk about the next episode as it being completely cartoonish sort of thing. Yep. And honestly, each episode is both, yeah. but they actually tr- try to tackle you know both ideas. Well, I would say straight up that most great or even just good stories are both. Yeah, I mean, in some level, and then like we've and we won't rehash it here that if you lean too heavy into the theme, you destroy the story. If you don't do any theme, you're like, oh, that was funny. Mm-hmm. Move on. We talked last time about when genre can be a crutch. Yeah. If your story is really just plots and doesn't have any bigger ideas or yeah. character motivations beneath it, it's kind of boring. Like stuff on the, on the Boom streaming network. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. They were a former sponsor of ours, Nick. We probably shouldn't have bad mouth them oh, like oh, that. Oh, yeah. They paid us already. <laughs> True. <laughs> but, you know, stuff like your quintessential Michael Bay stuff. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a very basic kind of layering. Similar to that, I guess, is the metatextual ideas, where you're basically having references to other arts in your story. Yeah, you, basically, you bring in meaning by referencing, and sometimes even just name dropping, like, oh, we're going to call this Prometheus because, you know, and then it's about ugly aliens or whatever. Because you're basically building on the familiarity of mythology in that mythology case. often, yeah, or pop culture. Pop culture references. I mean, know. it's hard to even talk about. We talked about this with Avengers Endgame. It's hard to talk about time travel at all without like referencing all the different rules about time travel we've seen in countless like, movies. And basically, Back to the Future. TV I mean, you talk time travel, Back to the Future. You know, you have to reference. You it have to that. reference. You know, the the amount Star Wars has been you know absorbed by all sorts of pop culture. They can meta-reference it without even meaning to. We watched all the Gumby movie. 
<laughs> and they referenced um, Star Wars through a lightsaber. I mean, a uh, laser sword. Uh-huh. And sometimes it's, it's a lot more subtle than that, but you're still acknowledging your influence in some ways. Like, not too long ago, Janelle and I rewatched the movie Dark City, um, mm-hmm. which draws some inspiration from Metropolis, yeah. the Fritz Lang thing, because it's a, by nature, dark city, sci-fi setting, yeah. people underground control, secretly controlling things. They do certain very subtle allusions to Metropolis and that, and film critics kind of acknowledge it, understand it, and it adds like, okay, yeah, we're we're still exploring these ideas by through repetition, in a sense. One thing, I guess another type of metatextual, what's your fancy term for it? Yeah, metatextual, uh, yeah. Reference, okay. Reference, whatever. So another, another type, I guess, of the metatextual reference is where you're interacting with current events. Okay. You have, mm-hmm. we recently watched for um, Monster Island Film Vault, the original Godzilla, mm-hmm. which is interacting with Nagasaki and the atomic bomb mm-hmm. in genre trappings. When Bowser Galactica, the new reboot came out, everyone's like, oh, it's 9-11 influenced sure. um, thing that there's this sort of, and sometimes people read a lot into that, but there's that sort of like reference to the, the Zetgeist mm-hmm. or the Gestalt. I'm not sure which of my German words I need at this point <laughs> um, of a time, of a, of a transitional time period mm-hmm. that like, I'm going to capture this moment that's frothing in culture in some sort of trapping. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people try to read modern events into oh, the thing, which... That's also true. I mean, it goes both ways. It goes yeah. both ways. But we've covered overanalyzation before. Yeah. But it, sometimes it is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, another standard thing, I guess we kind of touched on this a little bit, but any good story, or at least any good movie with acting... Um, <laughs> with act- Are there good movies without acting? <laughs> okay. For actors, understanding character motivations mm-hmm. is a big deal. An actor should be aware of the inner life of a character in some ways. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go all method acting where yeah. you are the character and you live through that person. That's that's unhealthy in certain yeah. ways. See Heath Ledger or almost anyone else who's played the Joker since then. But without going that far into it, it is good to be able to understand as an actor from moment to moment what is motivating what's this character thinking in response to the events that he's that's happened to him to his conversations with other people what's going on inside and then i think for the audience you can also sometimes kind of read in between the lines of knowing a character's background mm-hmm. what's maybe motivating them to make the actions take the actions that he does that there's yeah there's i mean you want to talk later we're just saying what kind of meaning can we pack in that's not direct Mm-hmm. And you know, and a, a good actor can pack in all sorts of things in, you know, a couple and lifting an eyebrow or just the hesitation before saying something, uh-huh. or just that choking his voice at the last second. Yeah. Um. And yeah, and you just add a whole another like, oh, he's thinking about his mother, or oh, it's Rosebud, or whatever. Uh huh. We've said many a time how uh, excellent lost actors are with just looking at people. Just look. And it is funny because when you look, I probably mentioned this too, look at the scripts that had like all this like, this is what they're thinking, but it's just communicate with this facial expression or just the like eyes. A stare or I a... I mean, just any scene between with Ben and Locke, just <laughs> eyes. Uh, yeah, because there's there's something, I think it's a Japanese thing that who, who says that the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's there's something about that. If the actor is living in the moment, it's going to come out through their eyes. 
And then, yeah, just it can you know that sort of extra layer of backstory in a in a action take something from oh good story to like much more engaging. Mm-hmm. And fan fiction writers are particularly good at noticing this kind of yeah. stuff. I'll, I'll often see posts. I'm not following fan fiction, but like on social media or 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 somewhere where people will like analyze like an avatar to last Airbender character yeah. and like how would this have you know having lost their mother at this age or. Zuko's inner family trauma, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of compare contrasting him and Azula, things like that. Like fandoms love diving into that stuff. It's, it's the whole it's a whole iceberg metaphor that you a good story you show your top of your iceberg and you want the audience to know or feel that there's all this other stuff mm-hmm. that got packed in one way or another. Another thing I have on our list of uh, ways that you can have multi layered storytelling: the twist. The twist. The thing that comes at the end of the story that redefines everything that you just saw. It's only like, wait, wait, what did I? Oh, oh, oh. Basically, it gives you a nice opportunity to go back, rewatch the movie, or reread certain scenes of the book and say, okay, I thought this, and it worked on this level, you know, which is yeah. pretty cool when you, when you pull that off, where like, I thought the story was about this, and it was in a, to a way, but it was really about this, because mm-hmm. this was actually going on under the surface. And in some ways, um, the twist does it, and also, I guess, related to that are, you have longer series, like, basically the retcon. It's, yeah. I mean, I say that lovingly, not like the bad retcon, where uh-huh. you start adding Scenes in between other scenes because you you have so much time. You, usually, TV shows do this or long running yeah. movies. At when a, a creator has been developed building their world, because no one can build their world completely once they start the story. You have yeah. to start somewhere and then just explore the world more as you go. But then, as you do that, you get to like add new layers to. Oh, this is what's going on. This Kingdom and, Hearts does this all the yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> or you go back, you watch the first season, you're like. Oh, well, because this is going to happen in season five. Oh, that means so much more. And they might not have meant that back then, but I think good creators know that that, that story works backwards as well. Yeah, it, it's pretty fun that way. Okay, so in, in the first Kingdom Hearts yes. game, there's this one part where you, you're you in the end of the world, like end of all worlds kind of area. First and, time. Yeah, and you, at some point, you kind of revisit each of the places you've been to before, fight through a bunch of monsters. Mm-hmm. Very end of video game kind of area. But when you go, when you revisit Hollow Bastion, you find yourself in this room you've never been in before with this big machine thing, like all these pods on it. And at the time you think, oh, okay, this must be some room where the scientist guy was doing experiments which you knew that was a thing. Yeah. 15, 16, 17 years, I don't remember how many years later, in the mobile game, which takes place like thousand years before the original Kingdom Hearts, yep. you find this same machine. It's the first time you've seen this exact machine since Kingdom Hearts 1, and it gives a whole new meaning for what this thing is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow. That's a very long callback in the making. Well, and I think these layers of, I think one reason why Tim and I tend to do the, enjoy hijacking things like Battle of Five and Lost, because these writers tend to like to put layers in. Mm-hmm. They like, when we watched Battle of Five, we had to kick Bran out because like, this has like all the things that happened in season one are like major setup for the next four seasons. <laughs> yes. And we had to talk about it. Like you watch season one, the first time you're like, this season's lame. But there's just so much stuff that later on he picks up and runs with. And some of it feels like foreshadowing, but some of it doesn't. You don't know that it's foreshadowing. It's like he's just slowly building the world. And because it pays off so well, you can't help but think he knew exactly what he yeah. was talking about here. Yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff. 
Whereas in Lost, it's a little different because that was, they were very much kind of creating things as, as they went. Like beginning of the season, yeah. I think they knew where they were going, yeah. but like not necessarily but early season. But you get seasons. to season five and they start time traveling. So I'm like, oh, that's what, oh, that, you know, connections. Yes. Well, that's where that that's where that severed arm comes from. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, that severed arm we found way back in what season one or two, yeah, exactly. whatever it was. And I guess in some ways, some of that stuff is less theme or character motivations and just interesting, cool plot connections. It, it makes th- the denser a story feels. I think the more people tend to gravitate, like just hang on to it. Mm-hmm. You know, because if it's a fun story but thin, you just oh that was fun. If it's dense, people keep coming back to it or talking about it, or writing flash fictions about it or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And that density, I think, is really enjoyable for the consumer. And it's also satisfying when you do manage to tie important thematic ideas in with all this. Uh, getting lost, which uh, no, we talked about lost a lot, but. Yeah, there's all these interesting trying to connect the thread of the plot things, but there's also these themes in terms of like the repeating silical nature mm-hmm. of what happens on the island, the silical conflicts that happen. Yeah. Uh, you can start seeing being able to pick up on that pattern is also very satisfying. It's like, oh, yeah, there's this constant struggle for power. On I mean, the in some ways, it's like almost like the meta narrative of the story universe starts being shown. Like, you're like, mm. oh, I can see. I can see the rules of this story universe, like the way the, you know, Providence works here or history or redemption or, you know, there's, you know, those big themes are becoming almost rules to a story once it becomes, once there's enough of it. For sure. For sure. Uh, One other thing we had on our list, uh, multiple viewpoints. These are the kind of stories where you get to hear multiple people's perspective on a big event, something that happened. And suddenly you're like, oh, I never saw it from that point of view. Tim, since you picked up recently Eye of the World, um, what Robert Jordan. I, I know, I may be asking for it, but uh, <laughs> haven't started reading it yet. But first of the Wheel of Time series. The, one, one interesting thing that Jordan does is that because Expedition of the World expands over the books, there's so many different political entities and people trying to figure out what the main character is doing. They all, there's always rumors going along and like, other people's perception of what's going on is vastly different from what you know is going on. Mm. And it adds a lot of tension because half of what people do is based on their view of what they think is happening. So it's a very interesting layer. I mean, it's like real history, but people react to their view of what's happening versus what's actually, what's happening. actually happening. Yeah, that, that does sound very true to real life. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, that I mean, that happens in, you know, just personal interactions like, oh, I think that he, that guy probably thought I was dumb. I can't believe it. Or, you know, oh, I was such an idiot there. And, later, you know, the other person is like, I didn't notice anything. Uh-huh. But you, you're all awkward and everything. You think that you've made a big fool of yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, hypothetically. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's the old proverb of, like, the blind men examining an elephant and each one mm-hmm. grabbing onto something else and not really getting the full picture. It's, it's always interesting when this comes up in a story. Like, an example I had, well, Hero is kind of an interesting, is one I was thinking of earlier, yeah. but that one's kind of odd because some of the, the stories that they tell, they tell the same sequence of events, but they'll either embellish or flat out lie or yeah. one person is theorizing. I think this is how it happened, but no, this is how it happened. So that's a little different. But I mean, it's still, it's kind of tell you the, the nature of some stories is basically people's version of the story. I mean, not that I'm a big proponent of like, sort of that postmodern every story you know yeah. but i mean that's how it works that everyone has their own view of what they think happened mm-hmm. well i mean it's 
an interesting part of human experience because yeah. we only ever inhabit our own bodies. And we have our own prejudices and bias to yeah. all the things. And there, we know that there must be simultaneous action happening in other places. We were just not there for it. Yeah. So when we were preparing for this, we found that another example, and I had completely forgotten this movie, of multiple perspectives is Hoodwinked. Yeah. Have you ever seen? Is actually a really funny version of different versions of the is it story. Red, Little Red Riding Little Hood. Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, yeah, like the wolf's perspective and yeah. her perspective. The grandma's isn't there a grandma? It's yeah. been a long time. It's been a long time. I remember thinking it was quite clever, and yeah. I'd forgotten it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it can it can be a really interesting storytelling element to say we're going to tell the same story from different points of view. And, you know, and then the bias comes out. I remember there was an Exiles episode where, like, Mulder told it what happened and Scully told what happened to someone else. And it was played somewhat for humor. Like, Mulder's like, wait, what? What? You thought that about? You know, like, I think in one of them, like, the sheriff guy, when Mulder was telling it was all, like, like a, basically a goon. And then when she, Scully, he was, like, very handsome and everything. <laughs> and it just, they played it up in the video. and. Uh-huh. But it's it's a, it adds layers to the way we interpret events. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's kind of an overview of a number of different number of different ways that stories can work on multiple layers, and it's it's really fun to. I mean, I think we said the the plot and theme is kind of the most obvious one. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we, we kind of talked about last time the Spielberg thing. Like, you can have a uh, a movie that's about kids discovering aliens, but it's also really about but dealing with the loss of a yeah. mom, or it's a spoof of sitcoms and family entertainment but it's also dealing about the trauma of grief exactly so tim here's a here's a question so we've talked a lot about how it's fun to absorb these things as a consumer what recommendations would we give to a creator thing that says look is there things we can purposely do as creator to add more of these layers or is it just something that naturally happens you know it's a good question and i think it it does depend on a lot on how much time you have to craft your story. I remember thinking when I was in direct film directing class that there's just so many options for how to move the camera, how to place actors, and what do you want to say with the camera. It's a whole different language in, in a certain way. Um, you can get paralyzed and you're like, just stick the camera here. I'll do it over the shoulder. Shot. You know, do this very basic stuff. Whereas you can say things and apply things through camera movement and through blocking mm-hmm. and, and all this kind of stuff. There's lots of different ingredients. So it may take some practice in your craft to be able to, to really build these compelling uh, multi-layered things. But once you feel comfortable enough in it and give yourself the time, don't feel like you have to rush your stories. Yeah. Like, I just want to get this out there, spill it out on the page. The more time you have to think think about and really delve into well, what's what's the important themes here. Sometimes I wonder if a lot of this kind of stuff is, I know um, The Last Jedi is still kind of divisive, but I don't know how someone like Ryan Johnson delves into a story. But like between that and Knives Out, he thinks in very multi-layered things. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot going on in both of those. Those are the two yeah. movies I'm familiar with. I know he's done others. But like here's a structure of the thing. I imagine that you do a lot of, I'm sorry, I'm talking long, but I imagine you do a lot of like outlining, like here's a big picture. And then like, what does this mean? And how can I bring out the, the meaning or explore this idea yeah. in this aspect? And, and I suppose someone just knowing what the, what is the, in the heart, what's the heart of your story too. I mean, at least that's how I view it. When I do like, when I do flash fiction, it's got a thousand words or less and good flash fiction is not just action. They're, they're hopefully deeper than that, but you don't have much time. So you have to do a lot of this alluding or connecting to 
you got to do shorthand. You have to find mm-hmm. ways to pack layers in without saying things directly. Yeah. And it's 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 a lot of it's trying to find those kind of those touch points that are common to people one way or another, whether it's, you know, a genre style or a, or a, you know, moment in a person's life or just for me, at least for the short stuff, it's, well, what's the, what's the very heart? What made me want to write this thing? Mm-hmm. And then trying to capture that somehow, but that my brain works that way. And I don't, everyone's brain works different for these sorts of things. Yeah. I think that's probably the more important thing to focus on. I mean, yeah, if you're put, putting the thought into the inner workings, the I mean, we've talked about plot as, versus theme as being kind of a basic thing. But honestly, if you do that by itself really well, some of the other stuff can really work along with it. Um, like another DuckTales example yeah. that made me think of this. There's this episode that they're spoofing a sitcom. They, okay. did, they did their own sp- sitcom spoofing thing. And it starts unraveling. Eventually, you start realizing that Donald had made a wish for just his family to live a normal life without realizing that he was touching a magic lamp, which is, which had the genie from the original DuckTales movie. Oh yeah. And, and so they're like, okay, so the genie made him the sitcom life. And it was like based on the 1990s because apparently that was the last time the genie was out of his bottle, (laughs) but it's, it's super meta because like they're dressed like uncle Scrooge particularly is dressed like he is in the 1990s DuckTales series. And they have all these 90s references, and the genie in himself in this thing is voiced by Jael White, who is the guy who played Urkel <laughs> in Family Matters, a 1990 sitcom. So, like, it's very clever. Like, here's the theme. The theme is about what does it mean to be a family? What's the setting? Well, let's set it in a sitcom yep. era in, for our usually globe-trotting adventure family. Yep. And then let's play on the 90s. Let's even cast someone from the 90s. You're like... <laughs> When you are able to get all these things lined up, all these things lined up, there's a lot of little layers to dig through. It's like, here's the one thing. We're in this weird spoof, but what does it mean? Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. But yeah, again, when you know your theme super well, then you can kind of build all those layers just like building the layers of a cake, I guess. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> better than our frog analogy. Yeah, yeah, I like that better than frog it's analogy. Tastier. Yeah, it is. Okay, well, I think we've we've dipped into that long enough. We've ca- cut into that cake for. I'm not going to try to spin that metaphor anymore. You don't want to put any more frosting on the top. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So with that said, let's move on to soundtrack. Okay, Nick, you have our first soundtrack for the day. I do. So in a perfect world, I would have chosen a song from Einhinder. It's this old 90s, speaking of 90s, um, like shoot 'em up game from Square. I think it was 90s or late 90s. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. But I have the soundtrack, oddly enough, but there's one where like it just keeps adding layers of like EDM music on top of each other for like three minutes, and it's super mm. cool. Like mm-hmm. it just keeps building, building, and that's kind of what I wanted to go for. Okay. And so I did my search on OC Remix, and this one kind of, I mean, had sort of the same idea. It just kind of adds layers of music in this sort of electronic sense. It's from this game called Line Defense, which I've never played. Um, it's a mobile game. Sounds like Line Defense. You might want to draw multiple lines, layers of yeah. lines of defense. I don't yeah, know. some sort of alien. Like I think it must be like an alien defense sort of thing. thing. Yeah, I don't know. It's a mobile game. Um, it's called Reversing the Alien Attack, and actually the composer of the original soundtrack did this remix. Cool. Remix his own stuff. Remix his own stuff. His name is Stam. And I thought it was a, just a fun little electronic sort. It starts kind of slow and just keeps adding layers. And I thought that worked with our theme for today.
we're back. It was nice. That was a defending gro- from aliens. Groovy song. Groovy song. Nick, good choice. So, okay, folks, normally we've been having um, sponsors of this part of our podcast lately. But it's time for some shameless self-promotion. Yeah, kind of want to talk about something something a little bit new. So get ready, folks, as the Derailed Podcast Universe expands. Are you ready for the next stage of the Derailed Podcast Universe? It's coming soon to a podcatcher near you. You thought 120 episodes was something special. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's time for the ultimate podcast events. The Derailed Podcast Universe is about to get much bigger. First up is Derailed, an edgy reboot of the derailed trains of thought you know and love, designed for today's young people. No children, no spouses, just hosts Nick and Tim, single again and living in the bachelor pad in New York City. They'll tackle the grittiest and sexiest shows on streaming. Don't miss a moment of the intensity of Derailed. Next up, boy genius Theo and puppet producer Leo will dive into the world of gaming, from PC to Switch to mobile. If you can play it, they'll tear it apart. With meme-inspired segments and cynical arrogance, they'll take everything you love about video games and deconstruct your enjoyment. No one should miss the new, hard-hitting Sons of Derail Trains podcast. If you're feeling retro, then subscribe to Extreme D Thoughts 99, where freshman Timmy D and Nikolai B will mix their live cast thoughts on great, old, and largely forgotten shows like Early Edition, The Pretender, Sliders, and MacGyver. If you miss Go 90, this trip down memory lane is designed for you, complete with rayon shirts. Finally, we're going full gender bender with this next show, Organize Lists of Ruminations, where hosts Janelle and Natasha discuss everything from cultural lessons on the interplay between class, breeding, and perception learned from Mr. Darcy, to why Mr. Carson's nose could only exist on British TV. You thought one series of derailed trains of thought was enough? You were dead wrong. Phase two is coming to the DPU. Be prepared. Well, Tim, we don't want to toot our horn too much, but that's that's exciting stuff. That is exciting stuff. That will not actually ever happen, but but we'll pretend it does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna give it that disclaimer now in case anyone starts asking, because you never know. You never know. <laughs> but which uh, of those shows would you most like to watch for uh, viewers? Which listeners? <laughs> which of those podcasts would you most like to watch? I guess yeah. you can watch some podcasts out there. We'll start live streaming. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, I, I, honestly, I think everyone knows which one they would most want to hear. They want to hear our wives talk. Yeah, yeah. Organized list of ruminations would be actually pretty fascinating, I think. <laughs> Probably. One of these days, we're going to get them to run, do a sample podcast of it. Yeah, yeah. I think that'd be a good idea. All right. With that out of the way, let's move on to our next segment, Pun Times. Wow, we went from silly to sillier, Tim. Yeah, yeah. I, f- I figured we'd save our... We've got a meteor segment coming up later. I figured we let's go ahead and get the silly out of our system first. I, I will never resist a pun times. Indeed. Although we haven't really talked about... What's our topic going to be for the pun our times Our topic today? will be onions for layers. 
Uh, don't I, ride Tim. No. <laughs> that's not even a pun. That's <laughs> <laughs> a little that's pretty obvious. I mean, yeah, you're just gonna it. talk rings around me. <laughs> okay, let's pick a real topic because I'm done with my onion puns. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, they don't have much appeal anyway. Well, they stink. I guess we could go um what's something else with layers? <laughs> Cakes. Okay, well we did yeah, we started with the cakes earlier. Uh, and frog. Let's <laughs> not go. Let's not go frogs. Um, we started with cakes earlier, and I mean they're. I don't know. I don't think this is first tier stuff. <laughs> well, they are pretty sweet. I'll oh, give you that. That's that's true. That's kind of cheesy though. They could be. <laughs> All right, hang on. Let me let me see if I can get around to this. Nice. I mean, honestly, this this topic should be easy. It should just be a piece of cake. cake. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Sad trombone time. (laughs) There should be some some tasty cuts we can make of this. I mean, any way you slice it. (laughs) Oh, that's just icing on the top. Um, I think you did that one already. I know, but... (laughs) Well, if there aren't enough, <laughs> there's not enough just by cake. We could circle back around to maybe pastries. Pastries? Desserts? Desserts, donuts. yeah. Um, bear claws? <laughs> you got any bear claws? <laughs> <laughs> All we have is one box of starving weasels. <laughs> okay, that's not a pun. That's an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> or a reference. Yes. I hope you all recognize that. If not, go listen to Albuquerque by Weird Al. A classic. It is a classic. My, my children love it. <laughs> and honestly, if I reference, I'll get some Barani points. Oh, okay. That's, that, that makes sense. Okay, let's see. I'm trying to figure out how, to, how else to chip in here. Is it like I, chocolate chips? Yeah. I, I do not know how. What are some other puns we can sprinkle in? I don't know, Tim. You're creaming me. <laughs> <laughs> These jokes just aren't having a very good turnover. As long as we can make the audience snickerdoodle. <laughs> what the audience doesn't know is that through magic editing, this is actually take five. Take five? Yeah, you don't know the candy bar take five? Oh. <laughs> I oh. wasn't on I wasn't on candy bar. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I went to okay. You're you're in pastries. I'm in dessert. Sorry. <laughs> I'll come back to that. If you do, I'll give you a hundred grand. <laughs> Man, problem is some of these jokes we're coming up with are just too vanilla. So, Nick, do you know the uh, the painter Edvard Munich? Oh yeah, love the scream. Yeah, do you know what his um, his favorite ice cream and letters of the alphabet were? Especially the ones that he liked to eat. No. Well, he loved to cook, ease, and scream. Veterinary's <laughs> hospital. I had to, I had to work for that one. <laughs> well, the proof's in the pudding, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's the cherry on top. Man, Nick, this is driving me bananas. Well, maybe we should split. You ever eaten any of those chocolate coins, Tim? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they taste mint. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to go to the Andes for that one? Better than going to the Klondike. I suppose so. <laughs> as long as you can find it somewhere in the Milky Way. Ah, you don't have to go that far. You can go to Mars. Oh, okay. <laughs> Isn't that in the Milky Way? No. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was lame. <laughs> grumble, 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 grumble. Snicker, snicker, snicker. Yeah, what you gonna call it? Oh, <laughs> uh, Tim, I don't know. My brain's dead. I think maybe we should try again, maybe on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like, wait, was that a <laughs> was that one or not? <laughs> I don't know. I don't like to shake it up. I don't, I'm what? Not following. That. You don't like shakes? Oh, milkshake. <laughs> Oh, dear. 
You're not bringing me any almond joy. <laughs> Just mounds of puns. Just mounds of puns. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, hopefully we told some real whoppers in there. Man, you know what you also get in the Andes? What's that? Snow caps. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Plenty of icing in the Andes, too. I suppose. Oh, no, it's on the wrong continent getting moose tracks. Um, <laughs> though I bet there's a rocky road. Probably, <laughs> probably that is probably true. Right, don't be nervous. Let's not get skittles or <laughs> skittish. I guess <laughs> it's close enough. It's a pod. <laughs> it works. I'm sure our listeners think we're nutty in each time we do this segment, <laughs> but I just don't know how we can cocoa nut. Well, that's why when you ask me, I would say yes, pecan. Okay, you got me on that one. <laughs> that was that was legitimate, like, out of left field, good pun. <laughs> there you go. It feels good when those come up. Do you know what's the Wicked Witch's minions, what, uh, what their favorite cookie is? Oreo, <laughs> Oreo. Are they called Twinkies? That's their actual are, name. Are they really? I think so. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I need to double check that, but I think they're actually Twinkies. <laughs> it's hilarious. Well, you know what they do when they celebrate? No. Ding dong. <laughs> the witch is dead. <laughs> oh, that's a great follow-up. <laughs> I don't know, Tim. These are coming hard. We muffin be doing something wrong. <laughs> no, no, don't scold me. <laughs> See, for a while there, we're on a roll. That's not even dessert. I have got cinnamon in there somehow. <laughs> so there's this one girl named Nella. Nella, who, okay. whenever she's super nervous about whether she would do, she should do something. Nella wafers. <laughs> Again, I had to work on that one. That was that was quick. Was it Nesquik though? Nesquik. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, some of these puns have a real crunch to them. Oh goody. Oh well, Nick, we've been working at this a while, but I think these are just slipping through us our fingers. We're really butter fingers tonight. <laughs> I, know, I guess it's just parfait for the course. <laughs> Well, I don't know, Nick. Do you have any more puns? I think I'm done. Yeah. I, yep. do, I donut. <laughs> There's a whole lot of fun. <laughs> Very filling, hopefully. <laughs> well, luckily, it's not cold. I have to put on my long johns. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we are very thankful you have stuck with us. Tim, are you stopping? I guess so. Don't desert me now. <laughs> <laughs> Pun time, everybody. Pun time. There we go. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, that took way too long. Well, when you edit them, they tend to sound pretty good. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully that that will come out better than it was to sit through. Long pauses here, folks. All right, anyway, pause, right. not bear claws. Yes, exactly. Uh, but moving on, we're gonna go on to something. Hopefully, that you will enjoy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying they didn't enjoy pun times? Well, I'm sure some of them did. I, I hope they did. I hope so. I hope we were able to make it uh, appealing for you, even oh, if you aren't players. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, I think you're done. You pull another one out. I can only do it like when I don't need to. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. <laughs> Anyway, it's time to get our buns in gear and move on <laughs> for our next segment, A Bit of Story.
so since we've been talking about multi-layered stories, I thought this is a good opportunity to actually do some storytelling, uh, which we do on the, the podcast occasionally. And this is a little bit of a longer one, but hey, it's a, our 120th episode and it seemed fitting. So uh, Nick, why don't you, you introduce this? This is one of your short stories, not a flash fiction, but no. a short story this yeah, time. It's called Malfunction. I don't know what you want me to say about it. Just What inspired you to write it? Okay, first? so this is a Malfunction. I wrote it because I believe there's some sort of challenge where someone gave me a number and I found a overclocked remix based on that number. And it was this wickedly weird song that was not great. And I'm like, how is this going to be a story? And it just ended up feeling like some sort of machine that was kind of out of control. And and I honestly don't remember how I wrote this because, like, literally as I wrote it, like, it gained layers very quickly. Like, Ooh. like it was a story, and then it was also, like, theologically interesting, and then also character. It, yeah, it just kind of grew on its own from a very strange beginning. Interesting. Well, we're going to do a special production of this story, Malfunction, and then we'll maybe we'll come back after, uh, after the story is done and talk about it a little bit more. Okay. okay. Malfunction by Nick Hayden. Rain slashed suddenly across Adam's face. He blinked against the relentless torrent, the icy pellets stinging him. The drops pricked his cheek, his neck, and the cold fire slid beneath his torn enviro suit. He had lost sight of the dome. He had seen it before the rain, when his journey had been furnace and sweat and wasteland. He had spied the dome, gray and round and marked by a thousand scars and wrinkles, waiting cold and mysterious in the distance. But now he could not find it. The ground slid beneath his feet, and rain blurred the world, smeared it away until only a soup of vision remained. His days swam together, too, each oozing into the next. His shuttle had... Somewhere in the atmosphere, the engine... He had stumbled. It had been a long, long journey. He needed to reach the dome. He shielded his eyes, blinking to clear his vision, to clear his head. He turned, disoriented, searching for some sign of the dome. Once he found it, once he entered and examined and understood, he could fix this planet. He could restore the weather revitalize the wastelands, restore art and culture and religion to this long-abandoned world. He stopped. In the veil of rain, he glimpsed a face. It was gone the next instant, washed away in the sorrow of this world. But he had seen it. He had recognized it. Her name was... He had not seen the face in so long, but the... When he slept, he sometimes heard her voice. It's this place, he thought, full of ghosts. It had been alive once. It had supported a civilization. How long ago? How long ago had the machine broken? He could not find the dome in whatever direction he looked, so he turned toward the afterimage of the vision and trudged forward. The door stood before him. He was shivering. He could not keep his body from trembling. A panel at the side of the door glowed with dark light. He pressed his glove against it. The door did not open. With effort, he pulled off the glove and placed his hand on the panel. It was warm. He left it there, letting the soft heat tingle up his arm. The panel seemed to melt around his long, thin fingers. Yes, this was the place. He had entered many of these in his years. This was the nerve center of the planet, the place where the chaos of uninhabited space was tamed and controlled. Even the dim glow of the entrance, 
could alleviate the sepulchral chill of the tempest. Inside was the power to change worlds. The door opened. He stumbled in. The hallway was long and dark. Only the lights at the end and his hand against warm metal guided him. Then the opening of perspective, the spreading out of the horizon, the vast interior of the dome, like a cathedral, a vast cavern of machine and light. The floor rumbled and the air murmured with a deep cogitation of a hundred thousand processors buzzing like locusts descending on a far-off land. Pinpricks of light flashed, gathered and scattered, chased one another across the ceiling like stars playing. Adam sat, then lay down, trying to take in everything, but he could only stare at one small section at a time, compressing the immense complexity into a sliver of simplicity. He woke, the soft voice murmuring wordlessly in his ear, its tone melding into the deep thrumming of the machine. In the center of the dome was a control station, a large open-air office that seemed small in the ocean of smooth metal surrounding it and rising above it. He wandered through the rooms. The panels were dead. Two or three screens still showed images from across the world, whirlwind and snowblast and quake. They flickered from one view to another, sometimes recalling green trees and bright waters and gleaming streets. He pressed a few buttons, not expecting a response. I'm here, the voice said. He looked over his shoulder. He shuffled through the halls, searching for her. With effort, he removed one of the panels along the dome's wall. It was an access to the steep steps that ascended the dome along its curve. He ducked in. Dim light illuminated the narrow passage up. Thick bundles of wire ran overhead. As he climbed, service corridors opened on either side. They ran along the dome's perimeter, aisles of pipe and processor, wire and fan. No one person could understand how it all worked. The domes had been constructed by massive teams of scientists, each member an expert in his field. Together, they had formed the heart of inhabitable planets. The domes cleansed atmospheres, regulated ecologies, hydrated deserts, altered tectonic motion, located deposits, purified oceans, monitored and nudged the now sustainable ecosystem. Out of formless worlds, sea and land, plant and animal, and finally human life, descending from heaven in rockets. It had not lasted. The earlier, simpler models operated nearly 100 years. The newer, more complex domes, maybe 70. They broke. One system, maybe the radiation shield on a planet too close to its star, would begin to falter. Once the problem was discovered and verified, once the specific faulty program or worn piece was located and replaced, once a second or third issue, unnoticed until the first had been corrected, reared up, then a totally separate error in another vital system would throw up a red flag. Machines wore out, code corrupted, processors slowed beneath the weight of a million million computations. More than that, the planets rebelled. They had screamed and cracked and burned before mankind. They fought man's soothing hand. They bit and snarled. Jehenna would not be made into paradise. Adam knew this. He was here, ostensibly, to send a distress signal. But as he climbed those steps, he gazed down the surface corridors. He remembered, fleetingly, the green and blue of his house, small but tidy, where he held her in his arms. Lizzie, are you there? He spoke, thinking for a moment he was back home, that he had never left, that this was only a dream. 
He stepped into the next corridor he passed and sat, leaning against the warm metal. He stared at the row of green and yellow lights across from him. The dome vibrated, its groans echoing dully. He wept. He didn't know what for, except maybe for some pictures he had seen in his head and then forgot. He felt their absence, like a spot the blanket will not cover where the cold keeps getting in. He thought he heard the wind knocking against the dome. I need to go home, he told himself. I need to go home. He did not want to waste away in this too warm, sterile bubble on this broken, artificial world. He wanted to go home. He tried to stand, but he couldn't. His body would not obey. Let me go! He panicked. Perhaps the dome had changed its gravity. Perhaps nanites were stitching his enviro suit to the floor. Perhaps... This is your home now. It was her voice, and she was sad. Remember, this is your home now. His pillow was next to him, fashioned out of clothes left behind when the administrators of the dome had left. He had his covers pulled up over his lap, and though the machines smoldered, he was still glad for the extra warmth. The corridor was his nook, his hideaway, his residence. He was happy, most of the time, tinkering with the controls within arm's reach. He could not recall what system they accessed, but there was a logic to the connections, an elegance to the code on the miniature screen that he felt he could piece together bit by bit until he understood not only the function, but the malfunction. Then he could fix it, and he would. He would. He let himself dream of repairing the innumerable systems one by one. He sketched a theory of what needed corrected and how to avoid further breakdowns, but if he let his mind dig down beneath the surface, beyond the too simple logic of restoration, he encountered the enormity of an entire world gone wrong. Then he gazed upon the long, deep shadow that lay across all his work. Everything was broken, impossibly shattered. The commands sped along wires, the motors ran, the transmitters signaled, the impulses pulsed. The work continued. It spun uselessly. The receivers jammed, the connections crossed, engines turned wrongwise, the code transposed itself. It sputtered and flared and flung imperial decrees across the globe in pig Latin. Nebuchadnezzar uttered edicts, not knowing he spoke to beasts. The dome moved with the same superhuman speed and intellect with which it had been fashioned, but in directions and by twisted routes that could not be untangled. It could not be fixed. But he labored away on his sub-subsystem and his little coating fan and his spinning mechanisms. This, perhaps, could be restored with time and effort. He certainly had time, and he didn't mind the effort. He lost himself for hours and days, tracking down bugs and kludge, replacing hardware, labeling pipe and wire, sensing little, remembering nothing, hot and cold in turn, tired, exhausted, and hounded by the sense that he was missing something, that some detail eluded him, and that if he could only grasp it, if he could only make it appear, everything would come together and he would see. Sometimes as he worked, his hands shaking from some ailment that had seized him, sweating from the entropic labor of the thousands of brains caught in distorted loops, he felt a cool kiss upon his chest. Whenever this happened, he stopped whatever he was doing and searched himself. He found a chain upon his neck, and upon that chain was a metal cross. It had touched his chest, and the cool surface had awoken him from his delirium. This is when he took hold of the cross in his palm. 
He stared at it as if it would speak to him. And sometimes he remembered, in a piercing moment, God, and how he had created, and how he had redeemed, and how he, Adam, had wept somewhere one night, and had spoken with the God-man Jesus, and believed in him for the first time. He could not remember when this had been, or where, or why, but at these moments he felt again the weight of that despair, and the light of that relief and joy as he looked upon that small piece of metal in his palm. Then, almost reflexively, he would try to pray, knowing that he should, wanting to somehow, but after he said, My father, words failed him. Something needed to be said. But suddenly God was a concept like the equations and schematics in his head, a system he could not understand or even approach. And so he remained silent, eyes closed, focused on those two words, My father. And there was something in the words that settled his soul and gave him respite. The work went on. Adam came to himself occasionally in the dark, when the dome's lights dimmed for reasons unknown to him, and he felt the walls of the corridor fade away, the narrow hall expand. Then there was a light nearby, and he heard voices speaking with muffled, indistinct words. He sat up and tried to stand. He was not able to even catch his breath. He had been captured. They were experimenting on him. Turn on the light. Show yourself. Tell me the truth. His familiar corridor returned. He ran his hands over the surfaces, trying to convince himself of their reality. He touched his face. He tried to remember what he had seen. A dread seized him. A conviction that everything was false, that everything was a lie, and he shied away from confronting the thought. He returned to his work. He felt a deep loss, a mourning for time gone and never to return. He did not know how long he had been in this place, but he felt and dared not believe that it had been years. In the mirror, though, he found a young man with a day or two of scruff, blue eyes, dispassionate mouth, close-cut hair, strong chin. That was who he was. He forgot what he looked like once he left the mirror, but in its reflection, he remained unchanged. It was light again. He found himself in a small room decorated in tan and brown. Before him was the woman, but she was changed somehow, disfigured, and when she spoke, the words were alien. She gripped his hand and she smiled, and he said something, a few words. There you are. It was all he could think to say, exactly what he really meant to say. He knew her and wanted to know her, and he had been alone so very long. Don't let me go, he said. The vision passed. He was in the skin of the dome again, surrounded by mad machines. He recalled the face of the woman as clearly as he could manage, and he listened. The desire to return to his work pursued him, but he forced himself to listen. He wanted to hear her. More than he wanted to fix the machine, he wanted to hear her voice. The cross was cold on his chest. He thought of God and wondered, for the first time, if she was he, or sat by him, or was envisioned by him. From long lost places returned the desire to go home, to send the message, the distress call, and go home. The corridor twisted and turned, but he closed his eyes and he reached out to that presence, whatever it was, whoever it was, the image and the voice, for it was slipping away. At the steps he climbed and he climbed until he reached the pinnacle of the dome, the place where he might touch God. 
the console was there, as it should be, and it booted up with a flip of a switch. The whole dome seemed to sway beneath the storm outside. It seemed he sat on the top of the broken world, and everything below was crumbling to dust and ash. He configured the system, boosted the signal, conscious of the storm outside, of the millions of miles of empty space, of the noise that filled man's universe. He initiated contact, took the mic, faltered. What should he say? He found he knew almost nothing, that his soul was empty and his head muddled. Everything's broken, he said. It was all he knew. I... That's it. Everything's broken. I know. The voice came through the endless expanse of space and wept in his ear. I'm sorry. It can't be fixed. I tried. Everything's broken. He could not help repeating himself. It was all he knew. It will be fixed. It will. Someday soon. I want to go home. Let me go home. My father, let me go home. His body was filled with warmth. The walls of the dome fell away, and he was in the room again. The woman was embracing him. It's all right. You can go, Daddy. You can go. Lizzie. He recognized her at last. How old she was. And yet, so was he. Yes, so was he. Something was wrong with his brain. Why couldn't he remember? Why could he... Lizzie held his hands in hers and kissed them. He felt a welling up of joy, so strong in his weak body. Soon, it would all collapse. The storm was buffeting the dome. The foundation was trembling. It was all falling to pieces at last, every patch coming apart. But he saw her, and he heard her, and the cross was cold, so cold, upon his chest. My father! My father! The dome was fading, and the room was fading, and on a bed in a nursing home, the retired dome technician, in a moment of clarity, died. I remember reading this sometime when it came out, um, and then I reread it recently when you had suggested it, and I was like, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Because it's pretty cool because it it's, it goes with on our category of the twist ending yeah. that kind of redefines everything. Yeah, because it rewrites all that came before, but simultaneously what he experiences is stuff that he would have done as a, as dome, a job. As a dome technician. Yeah. So it's not like he was... He imagined himself in a sci-fi setting in this one. You... No, it was like his job. He just was going in and out of things he knew. Uh-huh. And I, I guess even as writing it, I've just had that sense of like, also, you know, subtext theme is like the the sense of the world itself, like reality being broken mm-hmm. and we, we can't fix it. Yeah. And that's part of the the religious underpinnings of this story, which... I'm not sure I meant as I started, but as I wrote, I'm like, yeah, this is like, okay, it's how his life was, how his mind is, and how life is. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, I can see how how that comes from your brain. Yeah. <laughs> because you would talk a lot about how the world is broken yeah. and, and things like that and how man really tries to fix it and can't. And can't. And have to kind of accept that. In the end, he kind of has to kind of rest from his work, doesn't he? No, I called? mean, he, he does die at the end. Well, yeah. 
But yeah, it was just a funky sort of like the song is very strange that I'd like challenge myself to make it from. And it just, it was one of those examples where once it got a, a center of idea, my brain tends to connect ideas anyways. And it just like got going. I, I saw the song on your blog or your website when you first posted this. I, and I w- went up and researched yeah. to see what you, where this had come from. I'm not sure I would have got, come to this conclusion from that particular song. I mean, it is kind of dark, but it's not as dark as the story itself feels feels to me. Uh, see, when I come from when I come from music, I I listen to it until it gives me some sort of idea, and then I go off on the. I don't try to imitate the song anymore. It just is sure. like the it gets me the kernel, and then it grows into something completely its own, its own. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. But yeah, it's I think it's a cool story. It works it works first as a sci-fi, then it works and the philosophy goes whether it's the sci-fi or if it's just the confused man's yeah. brain. Which having had a, a grandfather who had Alzheimer's, it kind of gives you a, a new perspective from the inside of what that might be like. I'm glad that uh you enjoyed it. Hopefully the listeners did as well. But I remember it was I was pretty proud of it when I got finished with it. Cool. Well, I hope that gives uh, our listeners some inspiration for building layers in their stories or looking for those stories that have that little extra something, that little more something else they can dig into there. And it's great when that is in a genre that you naturally enjoy, like for us in this case, science fiction exactly. or, or even a cartoon. <laughs> so I think it's time to wrap this up. When we started, I thought we were in the 90s. Yeah, this is looking like the 2000s wow. already. I don't even notice when it changed half the time. That's weird. Hmm. Okay. You want to try to get out of the city? You think we can do that? There's that shimmering, shimmering song. thing in the distance there on the edge of town. Uh, we'll, we'll try. Uh, hopefully, our podcast will help us get home here. Uh, that'd be good. In the meantime, listeners, if you would like to uh, give us a positive rating on um, your podcast of choice, that would be a great help to us. We are available on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify. You know, always leave us an email at derailedtrains at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on our, on our website, derailedtrains.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. We would love to hear, get feedback. Let us know um, what is one of your favorite stories that you love to analyze all the different layers of. Maybe it's one that really resonates with you, or maybe it's one that your friend loves to talk your ear off about all the, the hidden meanings behind. Either way, we'd love to hear it. Um, for my soundtrack today, I was in, kind of inspired by Nick's choice of uh, i kind of forgot that layering music is a thing i'm always fascinated too like when uh, musicians can play something live but then they as they play there's that doohickey that they can like record the a loop of what they're doing and they just replay the loop while Mm -hmm. they play something they continue playing their instrument but they play something else on top of it i just think that's a fascinating process and so it reminded me of this guy sebastian frage frage i'm not sure how to say his last name What's his name on OC Remix? It used to be Arrow Z, I thought. Arrow Z. I think he's still listed on OC Remix as Arrow Z. But this is from his YouTube channel. It's a remix from Super Mario RPG, The Forest Maze. I apologize. I have used this before, but it was like way back in episode. But the song, but not this remix. Not this remix. Yes, this song from this video game uh, had a remix for way back in episode 16. So that's like... Over 100 episodes ago. I will forgive you this time. Okay, well, thank you. It's a cool example of that kind of looping, layering kind of stuff, which is, I don't pretty neat. I uh, hope you enjoy it. And until next time, folks, we are going to um, try to skedaddle out of this interesting 
is that like static over beyond that yeah, field over there? Yes. That's that's weird. I've never seen static in real life. In, no, that's in that's air. Not good. I think it's time to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, thanks for listening, folks. Until next time. This is Tim. This is Nick. Bye bye.